0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. My name is Andy Boyd. Today I'm talking with Sarah Farrington about her new book, The Lost Conversation, Interviews with an Enduring Avant-Garde. Uh, Sarah, I really enjoyed this book. It's it's a collection of interviews with, I don't know how many, but you know, a couple of dozen of the most important figures in experimental theater from sort of the... I don't know, 60s to 90s generation. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's you know, it's 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 mostly people. I don't know if you had a specific cutoff, but it's mostly people who are sort of, you know, 60 and above. Um, and it is and that of... was
1: the cutoff. It was 60. Oh. I, I wanted to keep it at 65 and up because yeah. that sort of falls into that generation. But I cheated here and there. There are a few yeah. a bit younger.
0: I that's one of the one of the big um, impressions I had in the book is just kind of being amazed at you know, how old some of these people were that I think of as, you know, the cutting edge theater artists of our day. And, you know, obviously you can be cutting edge and also be, you know, of an advanced age, but it it really made me realize, you know, how much um, of our kind of like, you know, experimental theater elders are, are getting up there, you know, for lack of a better (laughs) phrase.
1: Yeah. I, I, one of my favorite things that Mac Wellman said, and I went to graduate school with him, was that he never wrote a play he liked or that he considered was a good play until he was forty? And I, at, when I was in graduate school, I started graduate school when I was twenty when I was twenty nine, which at the time seemed old, but now I'm forty two, so I'm like that's young. But when he said that, I was like, oh wow, that's really encouraging. Mm-hmm. You know, they're always looking for the emerging young. This I the plays I wrote when I was young were just. I mean, it's all just training wheels for. It's practice. It's getting good. Theater is a practice. So I completely understand where he's coming from there. And I think that I think that there should I I, I so resent the term emerging artist and I so resent the support of young artists and I know that's kind of taboo to say. Mm-hmm. But once you have a lifetime of theater practice behind you, that's when you get good if you're still doing it, you know.
0: Yeah. I completely agree. There's this quote by Miles Davis that I think about all the time where he said, "It takes a long time to sound like yourself."
1: Oh, I, my I God. To nice find right your voice. Well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To find your voice and what you sound like and then to be able to depart from what you sound like, to experiment with that. How can you do that if you just graduated from, you know, wherever? I mean, I had no idea. I didn't even know how to format a resume for a year, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so you was that at Brooklyn College?
1: Yeah, I went to graduate school at Brooklyn College, which yeah. is sort of the the weirdos graduate school. It's, the great. It's
0: incubator of <laughs> experimental work of the past I don't know 20 years or so it seems like it seems it like is. everybody in that scene went to Brooklyn it,
1: it, it well it's Mac Wellman you know he's a he, yeah. he he's retired now but he um, he's Samuel Beckett I mean he is and he does not try to fix what you do he tries to take what you do and 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 <laughs> and make it what it is I mean there's no fixing there and that's the big difference I think and why I love it so much
0: yeah and he it I, I'm, I think I'm remembering this correctly, that he requested that he be placed in the English department when he first started there because he had been at a school where the entire theater department had been dissolved. Is that right? Am I remembering well, that
1: Well, yeah, he, that's in the interview. Yeah, it is odd because um, his playwriting MFA is in the English department of Brooklyn College. And they're actually, I mean, I haven't been, I haven't been back in grad school for a long time, but there there isn't much interaction between the theater de- department and the playwriting department. Now that sounds odd because most graduate schools, I think all have interaction with the actors, the directors, they're building mm-hmm. plays, they're this and that. And I think, uh, uh, um, I guess I, like I said, it wouldn't know any different. I kind of liked that. We were all sitting around a table with Mac, you know, working yeah. on these weird plays and we weren't hemmed in by anything other than, than that. <laughs> and it was kind of amazing. And we all built work over that time. Um, I didn't work with any. I didn't work with any. I mean, what and also what it encourages you to do is to get you're in New York. So you you do it. You go out and do it. You make a show. You find the actors. You know, you pay for it, which is hugely important to me. I'm not going to lean on a graduate acting or directing program to make a play. You got to get thrown into the shit. You got to get your boots on the ground and make Mm -hmm. a play. And that's the attitude that comes that is essentially boiled down to in this book, which is, I mean, if you want to innovate, you have to kind of do it yourself.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about the book a little bit specifically. (laughs) Um, What was the kind of inspiration for this book? Where'd the idea come from?
1: Well, okay. I like to be like dead honest about where the idea came from. Great. (laughs) I was working on a On a workshop of a new play of mine with my husband, who I have a theater company with, he was directing it and we had a space for four weeks. And it was in Jersey City and it was amazing. And from day one, everything kind of fell apart. And it was a very avant garde show. We lost actors. We had actors hustling us for more money. I just, and there was a lot of no, there was a lot of why there was a lot of, I want to do method acting in an avant-garde environment, which is very difficult. Mm -hmm. I would venture to say almost impossible.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: We had actors kind of get so methoded out that they sort of lost sense of themselves. And that was difficult. A lot of personalities. And I kind of lost my mind. I just was like, I am so angry. I am so frustrated, um, I don't know why I'm still doing this. And that was one of the first times I, I mean, it's the, the hardest that's ever hit me. I've certainly had discouraging rehearsal process and stuff like that, but that was a hard one. And I kind of was like, I need to either stop this madness or it kind of crossed my mind. What would Foreman have done in this situation? What mm-hmm. would Charles Ludlum's not with us anymore, but what would he have done in this situation? What would, um, you know, Mac have done in this situation, Bill T. Jones. And I kept thinking, like, these are guys that were doing weird stuff before I was born. And what would they do if someone thought they were um, Marlon Brando and showed up to rehearsal two hours (laughs) late on purpose? Like, what would they do? So um, I talked to my friend, Emily Devotee, who is a playwright. And at the time she was running the theater department, excuse me, the theater uh, section of the Brooklyn Rail. And I sort of laid it all out for her, what I was going through. I was kind of you know, I'm prone to depression anyway, but it really triggered that in me. And she was like, well, let's do a series and let's ask them these questions. And that kind of opened up my mind. So I, I did a few of these interviews. I had two of these interviews for the Brooklyn Rail. And then I connected with 53rd State Press. And she, uh, Kate Kramer, who wound up being the editor, gave me the opportunity to interview whoever I wanted for as long as I wanted. And she published the book, which was incredible. But what the main driving force behind this book was, was the question, how? I did not want to ask them about their awards. I didn't want to ask them about what they were working on next. I didn't want to ask them really what inspires them. It was not about what, it was about how. How did you raise the money? How did you deal if a company member quit? How did you deal with having kids and being a parent? How did you pay people when you didn't have any money? These were questions I was like, I know how I'm dealing with this. Mm -hmm. At the time, it wasn't very well. (laughs) And I wanted to know how they dealt with it and that they were still doing it. And a lot of my criteria was that, you know, they're still doing it, how they dealt with those struggles in the 70s and 80s when no one had any money. Um, And I think that's the difference between this and any other theater anthology, which is that word, how.
0: Mm -hmm. How did you go about selecting who you wanted to talk to? Is this sort of like a a personal (laughs) canon for you or were you trying to be kind of representative of that? kind of the whole breadth of that generation w- what was your kind of criteria for who you wanted to talk to
1: well i had a very very long list and it was
0: <laughs> fortunately... it's not a short book sarah
1: <laughs> sorry what was that
0: it's not a short book no i know so it's, as I, it's like you got to a lot of them as kate kramer
1: calls it it's chunky it's over 300 pages of this so i i had a very long list of people i wanted to talk to in uh i could have sworn none of them would want to talk to me. But fortunately, this crazy shit happened called COVID. And then all of a sudden, everybody was oddly available because a lot of shows got canceled, including some of mine. So I had this amazing, fortuitous timing where suddenly I could talk to Bill T. Jones on the phone for like, he gave me like two hours. And I talked to Ping Chong for like an hour and a half. And and it was really who was willing to give me that time. And suddenly they had the time. And suddenly everybody is in this reflective, sort of pensive time in their lives, mm-hmm. which was COVID. Nobody was working uh, actively with other people. So it was essentially who I wanted to talk to and then who was like, yeah, I'll talk to you. I don't know who you are, but I'll talk to you. Right. Um, I had a lot of people that weren't available. I had a lot of people that didn't want to talk to me. I had some that, you know, didn't write back necessarily. But um, when they said yes, I was like, this is amazing. And I'm going to ask you as, as honest questions as I'm what I really wanted to hear from these particular artists. And I should also say that because I'm the paranoid prep type person that I am, I prep for about three weeks prior to each interview too. So I wanted to make sure wow. that I had very informed questions um, and that I sounded, <laughs> at least I was, um, or sounded very prepped. So.
0: And then you you must have gone back and, and edited the interviews for, for length and clarity and stuff like Definitely. that. What, what was that process like?
1: Well, when you talk to someone and then you translate it verbatim, or sorry, you sort of um, transcribe Transcribe it verbatim, Mm -hmm. I find that very off-putting. I don't want to read people's ums and ahs. I just, um, some people find that very realistic and refreshing. I actually find it really distracting because uh, talking is a different medium than writing, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I purged a lot of the thinking I purged a lot of the, um, hemming and hawing. I purged some stuff that was sort of completely tangential to the conversation we were having. I purged a lot of, well, not a lot, but I purged a good amount of personal stuff that maybe they didn't want me to put in there. Um, that was important to me too. I made sure that every artist read the interview through and signed off and maybe added or clarified or took a lot out. Mm -hmm. Um, so I didn't want to put anything in there that was a surprise and I did want it to have a narrative flow. So, um, You know, I I bridged here and there, but for the most part, it's intact other than, again, the ums and ahs and thinkings. I took all that out.
0: Yeah, I remember reading an interview once with Angela Davis, and the person who had done the interview was like really careful about including every little um. I've read that too. It's just what a what a great way to make someone sound inarticulate (laughs) and like I know, know, like anybody, you know. Obviously, Angela Davis is one of the great talkers of our time, and even even her, when you write down every little hesitation, it really just makes it unreadable.
1: I, I. I agree, unless that's exactly what you're going for. Like if you're building a play right. in that way, or if it's... Um, well, Joan if Didion
0: does that, or did that. She's dead now. But she would, when she wanted someone to sound dumb, she would quote them directly. That was her <laughs> one of her great tricks.
1: And there are companies, like the civilians do stage interviews. And, sure. and then you use that, I mean, those hems and haws certainly can mean something psychological. It could even lead to movement moments, you know. But when you're reading it, and when you're trying to hammer down exactly what I was trying to get at with everyone... I just think it's distracting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and I think you did a great job making the interviews very readable and, and you know, and fun fun to read as well.
1: Yeah, I'm glad. I had, I had a you. great
0: time reading the book. Um, who were you kind of most nervous about interviewing?
1: <laughs> Richard Foreman.
0: <laughs> you don't, don't have to think that. about it at all.
1: <laughs> no, I was very nervous because I love him mm-hmm. and he embodies everything His work is uh, there will never there has never been and there will never be another person that makes work like that, another artist that makes work like that. And he, he, for me, invented um, I don't even know if he invented everything because I don't know if you can really lift and do what he did, what he does. And I was nervous because of that. I I think I did the most research on Foreman. I went to the this is before COVID. It was like right at the time that COVID started. But I went to Lincoln Center, which has, I'd say. I don't know, maybe half of what he has there, mm-hmm. and then Penn State has a library of everything of his. So I went and online, and I went wow. and watched as much as I possibly could. And I love him. I, I love, um, I love his. Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, his. He just he doesn't care what you think. And there's a great part in his interview where he was like if someone was in the audience by the end of the show, when the house lights came up, then I knew the show was a success. And I'm like, you've changed the meter of success and failure for me in reading that, you know, that's incredible. That means you're doing it for you. And that's, and, and, and and there's really no other barometer. And I love that. And that for me, really defines avant-garde in many different ways in the theater. So I, I was very nervous to talk to him. You can tell in the, you can't tell in the, you can't tell in the transcript of the book, but you can tell in my audio that I'm nervous.
0: He seems very, he comes off as being, you know, very gracious and, and easy to talk to in the book. I don't know if that's editing or if that's how, what he was like.
1: He is, and he was, and I had no reason to be nervous, but I, I just wanted to make sure that I sounded
0: sure. trapped. <laughs> um, what, you know, I think there's a, I don't know, there's kind of another side to this, this kind of feeling, you know, I'm thinking about like the, 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 like, um, masthead of the Little Review, which which said, uh, we make no concession to the public taste. You know, this kind of like attitude of like, you know, we don't really care what you think about the work. You know, if you're still in your seat, that's a success. I, I think that can read to some people as... <laughs> Uh, elitist. Um, totally.
1: It's, and, it and, depends on who you want your audience to be, you know, like I right. talked to Bill T. Jones said he, uh, in his early days in the interview, he talks about how he wanted the audience to be other artists and that this is a, a stratosphere that you have to work to become a part of. Yeah. Whereas, and I completely understand that mindset. And I guess in a away could fall into that. Yeah. I, I would rather someone off the street come in and discover the avant-garde like I did, you know. I would rather show someone that might not know the other side of storytelling you know
0: how did you had that happen how did you discover avant-garde theater
1: well i was a broadway kid for a uh-huh. very long time i did not know that plays didn't have songs in them i did not know that it could be done i didn't know you could do a play that wasn't a million this is when i was much younger yeah. and i trained to be an actor i trained to be a musical theater singer and i could i was a mover and i that was what i wanted to do I went and studied at um, the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center. I went to Connecticut College for performance. I, I studied it in Stratford-upon-Avon with his Royal Shakespeare Company, performance, performance. I was like, I was going to be a serious Broadway type. And then I discovered the Wooster Group when I was mm-hmm. about 23 or 24. And I went to see a play of theirs called The Emperor Jones, which was by my favorite playwright at the time, Eugene O'Neill, who I always thought you had to stage in a dusty way. I had no idea you could do what you, they did with it. And it was like, my time before seeing the emperor Jones and my time after, I really didn't know you could take a play and just completely blow it up and fuck with it and do whatever you wanted with it. Sorry. That's my husband's computer going off there. I just didn't know. And I remember see, it's, a, it's an hour long show. It's an older show of theirs that they had redone at St. Anne's warehouse. And I just was like, I need to be around this all the time. Mm-hmm. I need to make work like this. And I don't care if I have to work for free for them, which is what I ended up doing. Um, sorry ended up working for free for them uh as an intern for a year or more um I just it 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 changed the course of how I had my uh theater conditioning you know I like I didn't know you could do that and so from there I discovered everything else um I don't know I in some ways I like I like it all but I just get bored very easily and if it's not if it could be a a tv show tv has cornered the market in realism so mm-hmm. i don't know why it would be a play if it could be a show i don't know why it could be a i mean why wh- why does it have to be a theater piece that's where the avant-garde fits perfectly for me because we can take this medium and we can bend it and twist it and innovate and we could do whatever the fuck we want with it it's more acceptable and understandable in visual art and music i think you kind of know it when you see it But in theater, I think people very much want a beginning, middle and end. And when you don't give it to them, it's much it's difficult to for, you know, for the uh, average viewer to absorb. So it takes a little training. And I hope that my book helps with that. Yeah. Um, If you can show someone a Magritte painting like Jeffrey Jones mentions in his interview, who's a playwright, amazing playwright. If you can take a Magritte painting and explain it to someone, they'll understand that it's surreal it's a painting and we know Magritte and we know that he makes stuff that doesn't necessarily make sense to us, but we can accept it as surreal. We can take that same feeling and apply it to theater too. And that's where theater gets very exciting for me. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's where I, that's where I discovered it It was from the Wooster group. And they, for me, like Foreman, they invented it all for me.
0: Yeah. Um, I've only, I haven't seen too many shows by the Wooster group, but I I saw their production of Brex, the mother Uh that was up I think last year. Um, yeah, I, I,
1: cancel too, I think.
0: Yeah. And I saw it, I saw it twice. I, I saw it once alone and then I brought a couple of friends to see it uh, uh, again because I just thought it was just totally extraordinary. And, and, and actually like a very, you know, like a very careful and faithful production of the, of the Brecht play. I feel like I understood Brecht in a way that I hadn't before.
1: Well, that's the um, amazing thing about them is you, you can almost, um, take out, when you do it the way you want to do it, instead of the way it's traditionally been done, I'm thinking of Chekhov, their piece Brace Up, like you remove the preciousness in the museum piece quality out of it. Mm-hmm. And suddenly it becomes what it, I think really was uh, the Three Sisters, yeah. which is um, everyday people speaking in an everyday way. And suddenly it's accessible. Yeah. I don't know. I, I actually think doing a piece like The Mother or doing Brace Up in a different way gives you a deeper understanding of it. And, and O'Neill you know, too, I, yeah. I mean. Oh yeah, definitely. O'Neill
0: was, cons- was quite a, a, an experimental playwright in, you know, for 1915. <laughs> he was. <laughs> oh, know.
1: people don't realize that O'Neill was writing, he, he wrote a play called The Great God Brown, which is a sort of mask play where people, t- t- uh, they, they put on a mask to perform their outside feelings and then they take off the mask to perform their inside feelings, which is Strange Interlude is very much like that. Mm-hmm. He was a really experimental playwright in his day. For whatever reason, I don't know. Well, more and more people do O'Neill in a sort of fucked up way. So excuse my language. But yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, at, at, at one point, realism was avant garde. Right. <laughs> you know, right. When when Chekhov and Ibsen were performing realistic style plays, people had been doing melodrama up until that point, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, I kind of when, you know, when people talk about like the the great American realist playwrights, I kind of. I kind of always wonder like, wait, who are you who actually who you're actually talking about? You I know, know. Like, even Arthur Miller's not really, a, you know, Death of a Salesman's like a very weird play. It's it's not really a realist play at all. And a lot of Tennessee Williams stuff, you know, Glass Menagerie isn't really a realist play. It's this like, you know, there's like a character that it's just called the gentleman caller. He has no yeah. actual name because he doesn't really represent a sort of psychologically, yeah. you know, three-dimensional character. He's just sort of like a force. Um, that's that's very strange, you know. I mean well, I don't I know think... that we have a realist tradition, really. I mean, at least in terms of what people think our, you know, realist drama is.
1: Yeah. I I think with a lifespan of a playwright, that's why I think maybe young people should be less focused on ever so slightly because over the course of a playwright's lifetime, they do get bored with what they do mm-hmm. and they do want to branch out. And I imagine O'Neill, tor- tormented as he was, got bored very easily with himself. I mean, Strange Interlude is the craziest play I I, I'm just thinking of the the recent production with David Greenspan that was just so amazing he did it by himself um I think it's very hard to hang on to realism if you've dedicated your life to this unusual art form of playwriting because it begins to feel very lazy you know as Anne Bogart mentioned there's um I can't remember who the quote she quoted a uh, theater artist, and I can't remember who it was, but said, "Realism is when you just can't be bothered." Right. <laughs> I'm just yeah. like, "That's that's a very reductive version of exactly it," you know?
2: Yeah.
0: Um, one of the things you talk about a lot, uh, as well in the book, is kind of the the class dynamics of the avant garde world, and and you know, people are very you know, kind of surprisingly candid about the fact that a lot of these people, you know, for a combination of inherited wealth and the rents of 1975 didn't really have to worry about money in the same way that you or I do today. Um, How do you how did that kind of affect how you think about this whole tradition, that it was this weird, you know, combination of economic factors that we're probably never really going to see again? I mean, New York was literally bankrupt when I know (laughs) when this generation was kind of getting off the ground.
1: I know it's a real it's I mean, just because I'm a self-producing artist, I just know the money is what stops it. The money is what prevents you from. Um, I mean, now it is, yeah. if it weren't, and if we could remove that obstacle and if we could remove like, you know, even thinking about theater as a career, as a means of survival, if we could remove all the stuff that keeps us down, we could make some crazy shit. Yeah. I mean, that's what, what for me, the difference between that generation and this generation, I, I think that they were like... it it, it was a a no holds barred kind of situation. I mean, I don't want to glorify it too much. And I certainly am sure that plenty of the artists in here were, I mean, they've all, most of them had struggled with day jobs, you know, too, but I, I just, there are so many factors that will stop you from making the weird shit. Now. Um, I just know from experience, uh, Uh you just, you have to work. I mean, I, I, I need certain things. I need health insurance. I need to go to the doctor. Sometimes I need to, pay for my kids camp you know like so it's it's a really really hard balance and nowadays doing a show for a hundred thousand dollars I know again I know from experience is totally normal and expected for me as an independent artist I have to throw down you know a hundred K all told
0: yeah jeez.
1: and that's sort of unheard of back in the 70s I think I wasn't there, obviously.
0: <laughs> A lot of them were just like, oh, we never had anything to do with equity. Like we just, I know. We, you know, we're like, we weren't, I'm sure that they were paying people, you know, minuscule amounts, um, you know, to perform in those shows, which obviously, you know, gets, gets sort of exploitative over time as the theater starts to accrue more money. But, you know, some of the people you talk to, like, like. I don't remember who from it was the Black-eyed.
1: Su- oh, okay, from yeah. somebody
0: who t- talked about. You know, we had to do a Kickstarter this year, and it's like
1: that. That what? was for the mother. That was
0: for yeah, the Wooster Group's for 40 the mother. Years, yeah, you know, that's kind of crazy.
1: Well, the fact that the Wooster Group isn't the American Federal Avant-Garde Theater Company, like right, European right. countries have, the fact that they've been around for decades and decades, and they aren't the national theater of the contemporary world, you know, that they no. have to do a Kickstarter is actually quite discouraging. Like. And that's because the U.S. doesn't prioritize the arts. It's not necessarily in our tradition to prioritize the arts. We certainly went through phases in this country where the arts were funded, but now they're not. And I don't foresee a time when they will be again. Mm -hmm. So Kickstarters become essential and private funding becomes essential. I just don't think the federal government is ever going to really step in again. (laughs) So I don't know. I mean... In some ways it's freeing because like if a rich guy comes along and wants to fund your weird art, then there you go. You have it. But if that doesn't happen, you are in a very difficult place.
0: Yeah. I don't want to draw, you know, I don't want to sound too uh, tinfoil hat about it. But you do start (laughs) to wonder that like the types of even like, you know, sort of political theater, the types of political critique that get put on stage do seem to have a relationship to the fact that you know the major off Broadway theaters are funded by American Airlines or Bank of America or stuff like that. Like it's well, it's that's... a very narrow spectrum of like sort of political dissent that is allowed in contemporary theater as well. I mean, not just the aesthetic, um, but but I think there's a real chilling effect uh, on that sort of a model of of privately funding art.
1: It, it's. Um... Yeah, it, it, uh, Eduardo Machado's interview. He and I yeah. went into that, and there's just—I mean, if you're gonna use a nonprofit model, then um, I don't know. Surely, that shouldn't be treated like a profit business. It, it, it just can't work, right? And it—it it, a lot of grievance will grow out of that, you know. I mean, call it a profit. I mean, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not an expert in this. I don't run my own theater. I certainly have my own theater company, but I don't necessarily have the real estate.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But it's really discouraging when a theater company is nonprofit and I can't afford to go. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's really, really difficult.
0: And David Henry Kwong talks about that as well, that, you know, Joe Papp figured out that you could, as a quote unquote non-profit theater, bring a show to Broadway and make, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And that kind of changed the whole game. Totally. Um, and now we have, you know, there are non-profit theaters that have real estate on Broadway <laughs> that are, you know, producing, you know, shows where tickets are 150 you know, $200. I, um, I,
1: I don't want to get on my high horse here, but why not? Hold on. Go ahead. I, That's what we're here for. <laughs> I, um... I think there's a fundamental rot there and I think more and more artists talk about it. I cannot, I don't even think about being paid more than as a playwright. I mean, I've probably never gotten paid more than like, I don't know, a thousand or $1,200 tops to write a play. And this is, but then you look at the artistic directors taking home, I mean, at at least six figures sometimes an apartment when they're laid off like Mm -hmm. it's so incongruous that at least be honest that that's the model now (laughs) like yeah i i I, it's very frustrating when the admin is getting more than the artistic um the artists uh i I talk a lot about that with joanne acolytis who struggled with that a lot uh in the 80s when she was the artistic director at the public theater because she really tried to build that communal model and it didn't work. And I don't know if this country can sustain it.
0: I feel like people forget that she was the Artistic Director at the yeah. Park. I feel like people think, yeah, there was Joe Pop, and then there was George C. Wolf, And it's like, wait, 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 that's not actually think, how, it, how it happened.
1: I think it's a terrible thing what happened to her. Yeah. I think she was Artistic Director, I think for two years and she wanted to build uh, child childcare. She wanted to build a, 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 a world where there was no hierarchy in the theater. There's no artistic director necessarily. There's no people in the office that get paid more than the artist. There's no, like. I don't know how she felt about the board. I don't know if it was essential or not back then, but it was really a harmonious model that she built and the higher up systematically dismantled it. And it was a terrible thing for her that she went through. And I, I, I mean, I don't want to speak for her. It's not my story to tell, but I do resent that. Uh, hearing about it. I resent hearing about that, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's been all these stories that have come out lately of, you know, people, artists in supposedly non-hierarchical institutions, you know, actually pushing for non-hierarchical decision-making. And then they find out real quick who's actually in charge. And it turns out the, you know, like the, the board can just decide we're going to shut this down. And there's not a whole lot that we can do about that.
1: And it's frustrating that you need a board because that's what a nonprofit model asks for.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I think there are ways, like I've, I worked at Here Art Center for many years. They're one, they're one of the ones that is amazing. They're run almost entirely by artists that are on the board and that are in artistic directing positions. Artists in those roles can really make that harmonious world work. I think I'm a very idealistic person, but I, I, I do think that when you don't understand Art and the artistic process, and what artists need, and the struggle in New York of even thinking about committing to this bizarre
0: lifestyle—we
1: mm-hmm. just become totally disposable, you know.
0: Yeah, I I want to ask you something, but I I um I'm hesitant because one thing that you that a lot of people in your book say is that they're annoyed when people ask about this. Um, but uh, I want to talk to you about. Being a mother and also being an artist, yeah, because I love that's something that, about that okay, great. <laughs> I, I forget who, but somebody in your book is like, you know, they they only I'll ever ask the women artists, you know, how the kids are doing. That's true. Um, yeah. Uh, so you know, I'll, I'll I promise I'll ask a man this question soon. But um, <laughs> how has that affected your life as a working artist, and why was it important to kind of talk about that with a number of the artists that you interview, and also I noticed that you kind of leave in, you know, there are times when your kids or somebody else's kids interrupt an interview and you will often, you know, you do a lot of editing, but you often leave those moments in. (laughs) Why did you feel like it was important to you to kind of like highlight the kind of dual work of being an artist and being a parent?
1: Because I don't think only lawyers and doctors should be allowed to have kids functionally. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I just don't think that's fair because what you wind up with is, you know, having a weird artist mom builds character in children (laughs) you know (laughs) and i i sarah rule had an what i lean on in times of stress as a mother and an artist which is you must work within the interruptions she says that i think it's in one of her essay books
0: her essay book is so good yeah yeah a hundred essays i didn't have time to write i think it's that's where
1: i got it from i think
0: yeah just an extraordinarily insightful book. I was blown. I thought it would just be this like fun little read. And I was, every page I was like highlighting, circling, texting my friends. I totally agree. I totally
1: agree. And, and it, uh, the interruptions should not necessarily, uh, ruin you and stop the work from happening. And you just have to begin to be very, if you can Zen about your kids are going to interrupt you and you have to go with it. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't love bringing kids to rehearsal, but as they get older and they can behave a little better, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's an incredible and unique experience to bring kids to rehearsal. As, as I, I struggle with it a lot when my kids were like under five, but now that one's almost ten and one is in first grade, I, I I think for them to see the world outside of their little elementary school bubble and and see act working actors working who are not celebrities who. Uh, are doing this because they love it. And being in a theater downtown, I mean, I never got any of that, you know? Mm -hmm. I think it's essential that artists have kids and to make it work. Now, that is, again, an idealistic thing to say because most theaters do not have a budget line for childcare. And it's appalling. Mm -hmm. Theater should be for kids too. And Mabu Mines is a huge part of this book. And they had kids in rehearsal all the time and they worked their kids into performances. And, it didn't become a weird precious thing it's gritty and it's real and it's part of the kids lives yeah so i mean yeah lee
0: says some willingly some unwillingly
1: yeah <laughs> it's true and i i went to lee's um, tribute concert a few mm-hmm. weeks ago that Maud mitchell and his family his kids organized for him and it was incredible but all his kids who are adults now and their kids some of whom are kids were performing in this tribute to lee and it was so beautiful it was and they organized wow. it. Mm-hmm. it it was just like you see that it was woven into their lives art is essential in a full rounded life and i but it is difficult and it should be more supported in american theater mm-hmm.
2: we took it all we brought them to our land an endless night ember hot and icy cold the rage of the earth we made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade Two. Play it
0: now with Game Pass. I have a, a friend who's a wonderful artist, and her both of her parents are artists. And I think the probably the, the most influential thing that they did was just they she would try to interrupt them when they were doing their work. They would say, you know, go go away you know, find some way to entertain yourself. Like I'm working right now. And that's how she started, you know, making her own stuff. It wasn't so much the example is just like the, you know, being a kid with a bunch of art supplies and being like, yeah. well, I guess I have to figure out something to do with the afternoon. You know.
1: And the, the other cool thing is like, it's, it's cool for them to do like little, I had a show once, I don't know. I hope nobody noticed, but I had a, I, I had a kid in the booth once and he hit, he must've been five at the time and he hit the final cue, like just the blackout button, you know? Yeah. And that, that was like, I just remember that being a, a huge deal for me because he did that, you know, he, he, he made that happen. Yeah. Um, that was Jack. Levi, my littlest was a baby, I think at the time. So, but it's just normal for them, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. One of the things that I love uh, that someone said, Bill T. Jones said in the book that it's an artist's job to be the freest person in society. Yeah. Um, what an amazing idea. I'm not sure I totally agree, but I think that's a beautiful thing to say. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What are some of the things that people said that kind of stick in your mind?
1: Oh, I wrote them down. I knew you were going to ask me that. Hold on. Uh, Okay. The idea that Richard Foreman gave me, which I've always kind of felt, but never really been able to articulate, which was don't rely on the theater as your sole source of survival. That, that to me is what I've always done. I've had a day job nine to five for 20 years. I, I cannot look to theater to get me uh, paid. <laughs> I can't do it. It's just a, a reality. And so when he said the real innovative theater can come out of you not necessarily leaning on it, when you lean on it to pay your bills, you're going to make, plays with couches in them all the time you know stuff people love stuff people that is it's going to be instantly accessible and not that there's anything wrong with that but it's not going to push the art form forward in my opinion the other thing was um i wrote down bill uh oh bill bill t jones said that he he sort of labeled this young artist attitude now as millennial arrogance it's a double-edged sword because you do want your artists to question the elders. You do want artists to bust up old forms. You do want that. But his other argument on that end is, you know, I was doing all this shit before you were born. (laughs) You know, you didn't invent, you didn't invent, um, you know, running across stage naked, you know, you didn't invent kissing. He, He referenced some shows he did with Arnie Zane, his partner who died of AIDS. Uh,
0: yeah his counter argument is I'm Bill T. fucking Jones
1: exactly and like you can you can be your millennial arrogant self yeah but if you show up late I'm gonna have to throw a chair across the room you know I mean it's like it's like you know I'm saying that metaphorically Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's it is sort of something to really think about. Like I'm sure he questioned his elders, and I'm sure those elders questioned their elders. That you are supposed to as an artist, but you also need to maybe sometimes recognize the genius in the room, Mm -hmm. you know, which he is, and you got to kind of respect that too.
0: Yeah, Um, it is an interesting tension because I feel like you know respecting your elders is not the most avant-garde attitude one. You know, I mean, it's not it's not what you think of when you think of, you know, groundbreaking artists. But, you know, if you don't know the tradition, it's hard to know what is innovative, you know. And I feel like that's a big goal of this book, it seems to me, is to kind of let, you know, my generation and your generation know kind of what has come before us, in, you know, in some small way.
1: I Totally. Um, oh, I just lost my train of thought. You'll have to edit this part out because I had a point about that. Oh, the the definition of avant-garde theater. I mean, the sort of internet definition is that it's unorthodox and it's probably not liked right away. Mm-hmm. You know, like w- when, uh, when, Picasso took out the figure, uh, people were like, what the fuck's the figure? They got really frustrated, you know, and, and, and that's how you start a movement when you do something totally unorthodox. So you're going to have to be that asshole millennial in order to do that. And you're going to have to make the elders question you. So it is a back and forth. It's a real double-edged sword, as I said before. So
0: Another topic that you've mentioned a bit that comes up a lot in your interviews is the AIDS epidemic. And probably, you know, partially it was sort of front of mind for people because of COVID and the government's kind of similarly murderously negligent response to that. Um, And it, it really struck me reading your book that I think a lot of the reason why there's so little historical memory from the 60s and 70s is just that so many of the people from that generation didn't make it through to the nineties.
1: You know, the, the real tragedy there. I, I actually didn't hit me till I worked on this book where I was like, it is so cruel that the talent that was Charles Ludlam is, is not here anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's like gone, he's gone and his talent is gone. You know, we have what he did and we have his plays that are just incredible, but that, that is, that is, and, I mean, the narrative that is in Bill's... Uh, Bill T. Jones has an autobiography sort of artistic memoir that I read called The Last Night on Earth. And he tells the narrative of how he lost Arnie. And like, they had a theater company together and how it just wrecked these brilliant artistic collaborations and minds. And, and you always felt like a trap door was going to fall beneath you at that time. I wasn't... I was Well, I was alive, but I was a child. So I don't necessarily relate or mm-hmm. remember it. But uh, the fear must have been incredible.
0: Yeah. That was one thing, you know, kind of relating it back to COVID. That was one thing that Adrian Kennedy said in your interview with her that I thought was just so great where she was, you know, you were sort of like, well, how are you doing? And she's like, I'm terrified all the time. Yeah, I just I'm afraid I'm going to die every single day. And it was sort of this moment, you know, I feel like I'm starting a little bit. I'm still very cautious, but I'm starting a little bit to emerge out of the sort of psychological yeah. fog of COVID. But that first year, year and a half was know really terrifying you know i think
1: it was really scary
0: and i think we have to remember that that like we were terrified and the government did essentially nothing and you know we should still be we should be we should be forever angry about about how they you know let a million people die
1: yeah i mean i i i think it's important that this book emerged out of COVID because those connections are very strong uh it, it's a different pandemic, and it, you know, it didn't necessarily decimate the artistic community. It decimated everyone, you know. Yeah, yeah. It had no. Um, you but know, it, in but the,
0: go- the, the artistic community, in particular, I feel, yeah. you know, because it's, you know, pandemic spread when people are, you know, in close quarters and exchanging fluids, and you know, like these, these are all the things yeah. that, you know, people in the arts do more than people who, you know, go to an office job and come home and watch Netflix, you know.
1: And and theater stopped for. Yeah. I don't know. I don't even know. I, I I'm i seeing a lot of theaters trying to like scrap around to get to where we were before COVID rather than inventing a new model, you know, and I just it changed theater forever. Yeah. Um, and that's in there. I, I, I think that those two years I wrote it over 2020 and 2021. Um, and we have a sort of we did a Kate and I came up with this meter of ordering the book rather than putting it in chronological order. We ordered it by Content, sort of. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, And then we opened each interview with what was happening in the New York Times in a nutshell (laughs) um, that week that I did that interview and how that actually affected the content. That's how we sort of ordered it. And it's really essential to see what was actually happening in the zeitgeist as I'm talking to these artists that sort of broke molds in the theater over the last, you know, since before the AIDS pandemic Mm -hmm. and how it affects them now, you know.
0: Yeah, um, one of the interviews that I really loved in the book was your interview with Andre Gregory. Um, oh my
1: god, I love that one! He's
0: just an absolute delightful man, and I, I actually interviewed him on this podcast, so I oh, know a really? little bit about. Yeah, I know a little bit about what it's like to talk to him. And one thing that I found really refreshing in your interview with him is just like the total lack of cynicism that he has. Yeah. You know, um, and 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 you know, I, I don't want to name names, but that's not something that I that. I've read in all of the interviews in your book, there are some people who are sort of like, you know, everything that's interesting was done in my generation. And <laughs> why is everything so boring now that all the kids are making, but you know, Andre seems to be pretty hopeful about the future. Um, do you feel like you're more on, on his side of the fence or are you more, do you feel, do you look around and feel like, Oh my God, this again?
1: He's amazing. I am such a hum. I, I think, um, the distilled version of what you just said happens in the opening of his interview, mm-hmm. which I, I mean, I just always assume that theater artists, especially ones that are doing things that are sort of off the mainstream, yeah, are just riddled with bitterness and contempt. You know, that's just how I, I sort of have to fight that. I, yeah. I'm I'm sort of by nature. I can lean toward the dark side. Naturally, I have to work at positivity. But he I said, you have I said I wanted to talk to you about obstacles in the theater. And he goes never had him. And I <laughs> went, "What? You've never had a you've never had a like a difficult actor?" He goes, "No, I haven't." And I'm like, "Uh-oh." In my head, I was like, "This isn't where I can't do an interview where somebody's like, "Not bitter." So then he went into, "What is the truth underneath that?" Mm-hmm. Which is if there is that situation in an artistic process, then the buck stops with you. It's yeah. my fault. It's the director's fault and it's my fault for not generating an environment that is at least striving for ideal in the room. The buck stops here, as Harry Truman said. And he quotes that in the first page of my interview. So it is his take on the artistic process is so unique. And also that he stopped, this is astounding to me, and most artists I don't think could do this, but he stopped for 12 years. He had a series of firings, and he just was like, I can't do it. for. And he just lived and went on these sort of wild adventures, which he goes into in My Dinner with Andre. Mm-hmm. But those 12 years were him growing the roots of the vegetable garden, you know? Yeah. He, he he needed to grow as a human being. And those roots were digging into the soil as the top of him was experiencing life, you know? Yeah. And as, as a... Sort of panicky, constantly working. If or I, you know, I have this achievement delusion where I, if I'm not working and making something all the time, then it's all for shit. You know, he doesn't have that, and that mindset is really important, I think. And it helped me a lot to talk to him about that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, when when I interviewed him, one of the things he said that really surprised me was that it was like really hard for him to get into character for my dinner with Andre. Yeah. Which is weird. (laughs) And he was like, he was, you know, he was like, you you know, it's all stuff that happened to me, but also that I'm playing a character in that thing. And, and I sort of wondered talking to him, like, are you playing that character right now? You know?
1: I think I remember him saying he, he had a hard time getting off book for it too, which is also like, it's all his sort of memoir style accounts. And he's just like, it was so much text in it, you know? So yeah, that's funny. Yeah. What a guy. Yeah. It's great. He's awesome. He's so easy to, it's cool that it's just cool that he would talk to me, <laughs> you know, Right,
0: right. that a
1: lot of the, that all these artists were willing to be so honest um, about the how questions.
0: Was anybody else, did anyone else surprise you or they, was anybody else kind of not how you thought they would be when you talked to them?
1: Um, That's a good question. You might have to take out this dead air. Hold on. I'm thinking, uh, <laughs> who was it? Who I, um, no, I, I didn't really know. I didn't because re- I didn't know. I mean, I knew, you know, I, I was in school with Mac. I knew Jeffrey Jones as well. I knew a lot of the artists just for my personal life. So I kind of mm-hmm. knew what to expect. In fact, if I didn't know them, I did a hell of a lot more prep because I, right. I didn't know what to expect, you know. Yeah. And I'm not an interviewer and I'm not a scholar and I'm not a, an academic in any way. I am so not an academic. I'm an artist. So I just wanted to talk to them artist to artist, you know, especially them being so much more ahead of me and so much more experienced than me that I don't know. It was sort of a humbling experience. I just wanted to listen to them and, and mm. hear the struggle, <laughs> you know?
0: Yeah. Do you personally feel optimistic about the state of theater or do you feel or more, more pessimistic or is it, is it more complicated than that?
1: Um, I don't know if I should give you my Sarah, so positive and optimistic answer or my negative, normal, bleak Sarah answer to that. that be- I don't care. <laughs> I, I, I don't, I don't, um, I feel if you're not willing to do your own work and you're not willing to finance your own work Mm -hmm. and you're not willing to, um, work with people that are on the same plane, which are very difficult to find. Andre Gregory said that he's like, how many husbands have you had? I'm Like one, he's like, Mm -hmm. well, why do you think you're going to have like five directors that you like? You know, it's not going to be that way. Your relationships with them are rare, you know? Right. So if you're not willing to do it yourself, I think that it's going to be a misery for you. Mm -hmm. That's just my experience. I certainly cannot speak for the artists that don't feel that. I mean, plenty of artists don't feel that way, but I mean, I have spent hundreds of thousands of my own dollars on my own work and not partially from grants and partially from Kickstarters and partially out of pocket. And I have a day job that pays okay that I couldn't live without. Um, So, if you can't do that, then the theater is very, very, very bleak for you. Mm-hmm. If you can do that, then the world is your oyster. Mm. That's my philosophy, <laughs> I think. And a lot of artists aren't willing to do it. There are a lot of playwrights that are page-to-stage types. I don't understand that language. I, I can't write a play by myself. I have to work with some people that are like, what on earth are you doing here? Let's make this better.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I, I, it's Everybody's got their own way. I just, you know, I, I, I think if you're not willing to be like, fuck this, I'm doing it myself, then yeah, it is bleak.
0: (laughs) And it seems like so many playwrights are kind of perpetually waiting for, you know, Club Thumb or the Bushwick Star or whoever to notice them and like pluck them out of obscurity and make them a sort of, you know, new play world star. And that just seems like that just seems I don't know. My my dad would always call the lottery a tax on people who can't do math. And that kind of (laughs) feels like that same mentality to me, you know?
1: Well, I mean, I, I like, from someone, from someone who's been rejected countless times myself. Right. I mean, I just got rejected today, this morning, which was fun. But uh, from stuff, from either money or programs or writing or whatever. Right. Uh, if you're going it, to, it's the same thing as relying on uh, external forces for your own sense of happiness. I can't rely on somebody else to make me happy. I, it's an inside job. Mm-hmm. So like, If you're going to treat the theater that way, you're just going to be waiting. Like you say, you're going to be either waiting for money or you're going to be waiting for to be discovered, which is like the most toxic American Lana Turner myth there is. Mm -hmm. It just won't happen. So if you really, really want it, like Charles Ludlam started his own theater. Nobody went up. I mean, I I don't I don't know his whole biography. I've read it, but I don't know exactly what happened. But he was Mm -hmm. like, I need to do this. And if I don't do this, I'll die. I'm going to wait around for someone to give me a writer writer's program that I probably won't really like, mm-hmm. you know? So I don't know. It'd be nice if someone gave me a million dollars or a half a million, maybe like a hundred thousand. Right. If somebody gave me that money like the government used to do.
0: Yeah. Who was it? Was it Foreman who got $200,000 from the NEA or something like no, that? No, It was Mac. It was, it was Mac, Mac Wellman. Okay. Well, yeah. Mac
1: got, that's Mac lived on.
0: Insane. <laughs> like oh, that's how. I, that would just never happen today. Like I know. That's There's... how
1: the, the government used to be. They used to fund... The NEA used to fund artists. Like, that's what they did.
0: <laughs> yeah. The um the NEA budget for theater is currently less... Like, not adjusted for inflation, just in real dollars. It's less than the Federal Theater Project budget in 1935.
1: Jesus, really?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, this is why I'm saying, you want <laughs> capitalism? You want to live in a capitalistic society?
0: Not really, but sure, go on. I
1: mean, I definitely don't. I'd much rather not. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean... I, I ain't gonna wait on the government to fund. Right. It's just not gonna happen. So and Eduardo Machado was called the Grant King when he first started out because he got NEA grants every year, and he the kid was like 21 at the time. Yeah. And it wasn't it wasn't weird to get the, to to have that happen. And now it's like everybody's scrabbling for that one little taste. You know. Yeah. Well, you can separate yourself from all that by doing it yourself and being like oh, somehow I got to raise the money. I want this to happen. I'll do it in a fucking backyard if I have to. I'm going to do it and I'm going to lower my, I'm going to be, it's going to be, you know, at times it will be humbling and at times people won't want to work for you because you can't pay them very much, but you got to do it yourself. And then the world is open to you, I think.
0: Yeah. I got a, I did a play last fall in a, in the back of a bar in Red Hook and we got like a little $10,000 COVID grant and it was like life-changing. It's like suddenly we were able to just focus on rehearsal instead of having every meeting be, how are we going to get this money? How are we going to get this money? How are we going to get this money?
1: That is, that is the oxygen that theater needs because it needs funding. And if if you have $10,000 and everybody's getting paid a thousand bucks a week or whatever it is, I mean, imagine. Yeah. Now I think you should pay everyone. I think every actor should be paid all the time. These theaters, I don't have to name them. I think you know who I'm talking about. That don't pay f- actors. Yeah, it's obs- it's obscene. So again, capitalism: pay people; they'll do good for you.
0: <laughs> um, well, Sarah, I only have one last question, which is: Are you are you working on anything these days? I know you're you know doing promotion for the book, but do you have any other kind of irons in the fire?
1: Well, I, um, my husband, and I made my husband's Reed Farrington. He's a director. Over COVID, we wrote this amazing play about the January 6th insurrection. It almost came right after that. Uh, it w- it's a sort of bizarre, uh, completely insane adaptation of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. And we wanted to do a play version of it. But instead, we, we actually got the New Jersey State Council on the Arts grant to do that one, which was a nice, juicy $20,000. I've never, ever been more excited is when we got that and that funded not the play because we didn't want to have that it was the, it was early 2021 and we didn't want to do a play for 30 people and have that grant have supported it do you know what i mean yeah uh we wanted it to be huge so we funded a film of that play we made a real full-length feature film of this play called mendacity where we have lindsey graham in the um Liz Taylor role from Cat on a Hot Tin Roof.
0: Great. Well, I'll be I'll be hungrily awaiting uh, that release. (laughs) Uh, Sarah Farrington, thanks so much for speaking with me. It's been a real pleasure to get to talk to you.
1: Thank you so much, Andy. This is really fun.